have a warrant for your arrest for the murder of William Miller, who was the gas station attendant. But you're wrong. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. In the game of chess, every piece on the board has a purpose. They all have their own individual strengths and weaknesses. The queen is considered to be the most powerful piece in the game. She's the most versatile, able to move in any direction, sliding from one end of the board to the other in a single move. And then there's the pawn. Don't get me wrong, a pawn can be powerful. However, their primary purpose is that of a sacrificial lamb. They can only move one or two spaces at a time, and they can only move forward. Typically, the pawn is used simply to set up a more important move later in the game. Each player begins the game with only one queen, but eight pawns. The reason that you're given so many of these little pieces is because most winning strategies consist of sacrificing most of them along the way. As long as you can capture the king, the lives of the pawns simply don't matter. They are collateral damage. When it comes to the investigation into Bill Little's murder, Jamie Snow was the king that the state had its sights set on, and Susan Claycomb was nothing more than a sacrificial pawn in the eyes of the state's attorney's office. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Susan Claycomb's trial appears to have been nothing more than a practice run for Jamie's. From what I can see in the transcripts, there was literally no evidence whatsoever connecting her to Bill Little's murder. I believe that the state placed a target on Susan the day that she was taken to the Bloomington Police Department with Tammy Snow. Detective Katz and Detective Barkas seem to have been operating more in the capacity of mob muscle rather than actually investigating Bill's murder. They had developed a method of getting what they want through fear. According to Jamie's ex-wife, Susan was terrified on the day she was interrogated. Imagine yourself in her position. She was pregnant and minding her own business when she gets hauled into the interrogation room and told that if she doesn't tell the detectives what they want to hear, she was going to be charged with murder. She was terrified and rightfully so. She didn't just have herself to think about. She was facing the reality of giving birth to her child in prison. Susan never did cave to the state. She refused to testify against Jamie, even though that meant that she was going to be charged with murder. And from what I can interpret from the available documents, it seems apparent to me that the state never actually intended on taking Susan to trial. The plan was simple. 
charge her with murder. Once she was indicted and was facing the very real possibility of being convicted, they would offer her a deal in exchange for her testifying that she was Jamie's driver for the murder. But what the state didn't count on was Susan Claycomb calling their bluff. Jamie once described Susan to me as a woman with more integrity than anyone else he had ever met in his lifetime. And that's for very good reason. Once Susan was indicted, the negotiations began. According to her, at one point she was offered a reduced charge from murder to obstruction of justice and a sentence of probation if she would just testify against Jamie. Just consider that. She was offered an out where she wouldn't have to serve any more jail time. But Susan refused the deal. Even though had she accepted it, it would have meant that she was guaranteed to be free and able to raise her baby. And yet still, she refused. Once it became clear that Susan was not going to cave, the state then shifted gears. They decided to try Susan before Jamie. Now think about that for a second. Why try Susan first? If Jamie was convicted, it would have been a whole lot easier to follow up with Susan's trial. After all, there was no way that the state could convict Susan unless they were able to first prove that Jamie was actually guilty. She couldn't have assisted him in the murder if he didn't commit the murder. They could have even tried them together, like what we saw with Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin in the West Memphis 3 case. In my opinion, Susan was tried first for the very same reason that Jesse Miss Kelly was tried first. In both cases, the state had no real evidence against the men that they were trying to convict. And in both cases, they needed a solid witness to seal the deal. The strategy was simple. Sacrifice the pawn. I personally believe that the only reason Susan Claycomb was taken to trial at all was simply for leverage. The prosecution was unable to convince her to testify against Jamie with the fear of a conviction, but maybe they could convince her after she actually was convicted. I think that the strategy was to try to convict her, and then once she was sentenced to spend the rest of her life in prison, then offer her a deal to reduce her time, just like they did with so many other witnesses in this case. But unfortunately for the state, they weren't able to convince the jury that either Susan or Jamie had anything to do with Bill's murder. And on August 31st of 2000, Susan Claycomb was acquitted. Once Susan was found not guilty, the state had to regroup. They had no other choice. They needed a new strategy if they were going to secure a conviction against Jamie. At that point, Susan was out of sight and out of mind. But forgetting and moving on with her life wasn't quite as easy for Susan as it was for Charlie Raynard and Tina Griffin. During her time as a pawn in the state's game, she had to give birth to her baby boy while she was in jail awaiting trial. She had to live with the fear that she may never get to send him off to school on his first day of kindergarten or watch him graduate high school. And that fear was nothing more than leverage to Griffin and Reynard. But it was devastating, life-altering even, for Susan. After reading through Susan's trial transcripts, I really wanted to know what the state was thinking. What was actually going on in that courtroom? 
Luckily, after seeing chatter about this season of the podcast on social media, a woman named Tori reached out to me. She was one of the 12 jurors who voted to unanimously acquit Susan at her trial. And earlier this week, I was able to get Tori on the phone to talk to me about her experience. And I think when you listen to this interview, you're going to be surprised to find out what went on at the trial, and even more so when you hear what happened after the trial. Tori, do you still live in the Bloomington area? Yeah, I do. Okay. Have you ever sat on a jury before Susan's? No, it was my only jury, and it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. It was really hard. How long was the trial? I want to say it was about two weeks, but I, I could be misremembering like on exactly how many days it was. It was ironic because I was less stressed being on the jury than I was at work, but then the ramifications of being on the jury made me really more stressed. Yeah, it's a lot. You know, I've, I've been on a couple juries and it's something that I've always wanted to do and I was happy to do it. And then all of a sudden you realize that you're holding someone else's life in your hands. It's pretty, it's pretty heavy. Yes. Yeah. So um, from 1989 to 94, I was a substance abuse counselor. So I, in a sense, made a lot of decisions that people, you know, the consequences was they went back to prison or they went to jail. Mm -hmm. And this was harder than that. You know, I, in those cases, I knew the circumstances. I knew the person. I knew what they did right. or did not do. And I always had a team that, that was part of the decision-making process. I wasn't alone, but in a jury, you're part of a team, too. Right. And well, it's tricky, too, because in that other job, you're basically the investigator. You're the fact finder. And you can go get more information if you want it, where when you're on a jury, you're kind of hamstrung by only being able to make a decision based on what the two sides are telling you. Right. That can be really, really tricky, I'm sure. So in general, you said, I know you said it was really stressful. In general, how did you think that trial went, not getting to innocence or guilt or anything like that? Did you think things went smoothly? Were you happy with the decision that the the other jurors ended up with? Oh, yeah. Well, I think the jury, we, we took it seriously. We really did look at all the evidence that was presented and that we spent, I can't remember how long, deliberating. I know that we had made a decision and then we decided not to present the decision until the next day, but we presented it first thing in the morning the next day. Why did you do that? Were you guys just wanting to sleep on it? Kind of. We had been kind of, the judge had been kind of threatening whether he was going to sequester us or not. We did not want to be sequestered in a hotel. We all promised we would not, you know, look at any media and things like that. But I think we, you know, we wanted one more day just to sleep on it, I think. And looking back on that, I feel, I, I have so much compassion for Susan. And I just, she was, she was such a pawn in the thing. And, and jury was a pawn in this whole process, in my opinion. The, the jury was, expected to make a decision on such little evidence. And the jury was presented with the idea that if, you know, Susan was guilty of murder, the only way to determine that was to find first James Snow guilty of murder. Right. And so all the, all the evidence was about him. There was very little about Susan. I mean, a few things about where she was, but she was really out of the picture. It was really much more about Jamie Snow and the evidence against him. You know, I always I always thought it was very odd that they tried the case in the order that they did. 
my theory on that is we were the, the jury was the pawn. We were the testing ground mm-hmm. for evidence because after the trial, we all got called back into the state's attorney's office individually, and we were grilled on what pieces of evidence were compelling to us. Really? Was that like like right after the trial, like that day, or like days later? A couple of days later. It was not that day. I know it was not that day because I my first thing I did that day was I went back to my office and I read everything I could get my hands on about the trial because there were so many pieces of information that we weren't provided the whole picture on. Mm-hmm. And I knew the court reporter. I knew uh, you know I knew the court reporter could present more information. Like the private investigator, we didn't know who he was. They were just told his name. Right. And you couldn't figure out, well, who is this guy? Why is he talking about this? So there's pieces of evidence that, you know, complete evidence we weren't prepping to. But I know it wasn't the first day. I want to say it was within the next, within that week. So they called, they called you back in did, as a group or do you say individually? Like one, were you... Individually. Okay. Individually. So I, I, I remember meeting with Charlie, the state's attorney. And and asking specific questions. What did you think about this? What did you think about this? You know, to be honest with you, I think they they probably used you guys as pawns in two ways. One is a yeah, you're right. It was it was kind of a practice run for Jamie Snow's trial. But secondly, I think their whole and and I'm curious to know your feelings on this. But it seems to me that Susan was a pawn, obviously, in this. She was. I've always said what I felt they, they were trying to get Susan to turn evidence on Jamie. I don't think she had any evidence to turn, but she was a pawn. Absolutely, she was a pawn. I wonder if the reason, because what would make the most sense, right, is to try Jamie Snow, figure out if he's guilty. If he's guilty, then go after the accomplice. Doing it the other way around sounds to me like their intention was to convict her and then offer her a deal on her sentence in order to testify against Jamie. And I wondered if she was, if they were trying to get her to turn before she went to the trial process, you know, to get out of the trial. So the smartest thing that Susan did was to have Steve Skelton as her attorney. So I walked away from from this situation thinking, if I said to my husband, if I ever get, you know, arrested, you call Steve Skelton. I don't like the man personally, but he is a really good defense attorney. And I, you know, I put all my money into him. Yeah, I, I've I've heard that from several people that, number one, he's a great attorney and that he did a great job in her trial. Have you, have you listened to the podcast? I know you had commented on like our post that we were going to be covering it. Are, have you actually been listening? I'll be honest, I missed a couple episodes. I listened last night to the most recent one. Where you're talking about Danny Martinez's testimony. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you know you wonder if Susan, if they tried to plea her out before the trial, and I, I if you wanted, I have the answer to that. They did. They offered her multiple deals. They even offered her a deal, I believe, for it was either very little time or no time if she would just testify against Jamie, and she refused. She refused and and went to trial. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I, I don't think she had anything to tell. I mean, the evidence that you've talked about in your podcast definitely sways me more towards Jamie not being guilty. The evidence that we heard was so circumstantial, there was no way to pin it, in my opinion, mm-hmm. on Jamie. But absolutely no evidence about Susan. Right. And I've just started reading through her transcripts. And all I keep thinking is this had to be a really strange trial to sit on the jury for because 
you know, it was Susan's trial on trial for murder. And from what I can see, almost it's not about her. Right. How did they attempt to connect Susan to Jamie? If you can remember from the trial, like like one, I know they're trying to prove Jamie's guilty, but what evidence did they present that Susan actually had anything to do with it? Well, they kept presenting the idea that she was driving the car. And so I recall there being some discussion about her being in a car with Jamie, people seeing her driving in a car or being in a car with Jamie. I don't even know that it was around the same days. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure why that was relevant, but we established that she could drive. Right. And at one time, Jamie might have been in a car with her. Right. I recall, and, and, you know, it has been many years, but I recall there being somebody presenting a recollection of two cars pulling up next to each other and Jamie saying something to somebody in the other car. And there was some implication that it was about Bill Little. But even that was very hearsay and circumstantial. Mm -hmm. And then there was the beer bottle, you know, him pouring beer into the ground saying, R.I.P. Bill Little. Yeah. And, and again, all that is about Jamie and not about Susan. Exactly. So, well, well, let me ask you this, because we're obviously Susan was acquitted. You guys voted unanimously. And I do want to circle back to that process and deliberations. But before I do that, while we're, while we're on the topic, because, you know, Susan has since passed. Yeah, I was really sorry to hear that. Yeah, yeah, me too. And, you know, we're working on Jamie's case. And I'm really curious from someone who sat in the box in Susan's trial, when the when the case was over, did you come away thinking that, obviously you thought Susan was not guilty, but did you come away thinking that Jamie was? No, I, I didn't feel like Jamie was. I felt that the evidence was too circumstantial and too much hearsay. There was a lot of jailhouse confessions. They trounced through a few people right out of jail, but that that doesn't tell you, you know, what's going on. And even those were fairly circumstantial. What about what did you think about? Because you just said you just listened to the last episode, which was Danny Martinez, mm -hmm. and there were there was a couple significant differences in the two trials with Danny. One was. In your trial, I know he said he was 85% sure it was Jamie. In Jamie's trial, he said 100%. And then the other big one was, in your trial, you had Steve Skelton cross-examining him. Right. But what was, at, at your trial, from getting to see firsthand him testify, what did you think about Danny Martinez's statement that he saw Jamie at the gas station that night? Well, he was probably the most compelling witness, I, I mean, of, of the ones that we heard. But there were still missing pieces to his testimony. It's it, because there were other witnesses that saw different things, right? Saw a different person. So that was a piece that we talked about, you know, as a jury. But it it did not sway people. Did you think that he was telling the truth and maybe got his memory wrong? I think that that's probably. I mean, we didn't have other information to suggest that there was any influence on him. Mm -hmm. So you know, it, it was nine years, right? Right. And so, so, yeah, things change. <laughs> you know, your memories change. That's easy to happen. Right. Were you surprised when you listened to this week's episode to find out how many times, because that, that didn't come out of trial, how many times that he had the opportunity to identify Jamie and the amount of pressure, including having Bill's mother call him? Were you surprised to hear that? Yes. Yeah, I, I very much was. I haven't had anybody reach out yet from Jamie's trial, um, any of the jurors. 
and I'm I'm really curious how they they took that because you know when I I have the the advantage of knowing all of this information that was found out after the trial, so it seems very obvious to me. But I'm so glad I get a chance to talk to you because not only to hear your perspective from back then, but to know your perspective now, hearing all this other evidence that you didn't know at trial, you know, and how that makes you feel about what you know the two weeks you spent in that trial. Well, I'm grateful that we made the decision we made. Right, for sure. So let's, let's talk about that decision. You deliberated for, you you're said you're not sure how long you guys, was it more than a day? I'm trying to recall. I was going to grad school in the evening, and I know I had one class I think I had thought I might have to miss or be late to because we went until late. I remember being at the Law and Justice Center late. I think we may have started deliberating that day and we ended late and then it was the next day we came back and gave our decision okay i could be wrong i'm sorry that's all right i I can look that up in the transcript i know that we we asked for clarification on a couple of things we quite frankly didn't understand how you know how you could charge somebody with murder for that reason (laughs) you know so we asked for the legal definition of that we asked for oh those big post-it notes so we wallpaper to that jury room mm-hmm. with our notes in timelines and you know going over each piece of evidence that we that was presented that we had. Did you guys take votes along the way? I believe, and I could be wrong, that we wanted to go through the evidence first mm-hmm. and then we took a vote. Okay. I don't recall multiple votes. Okay. So that so as far as you know, we're all twelve jurors. Obviously they ended up a unanimous verdict, but Everyone agreed without a whole lot of back and forth that she was not guilty? Yes. We had a very good lead. He he had been on the jury before, and he was really good about making sure everybody talked, making sure everybody contributed to the to the conversation, and we did not fight about anything. We, you know, we might have discussed something, but we didn't fight or get into any arguments about anything. Right, so it's a pretty smooth deliberation process. Yes. Even though there's so much weight to it, and by the way, I really appreciate how hard you guys work to come to that verdict, even in light of the the lack of evidence. I wish all juries would take that much time and really go through things like that. We wouldn't be in a lot of the messes that we're in if that happened more often. It sounds like it wasn't a terribly hard decision to come up with the verdict of not guilty. Correct. Was there any evidence that you walked away? where you thought that Jamie Snow could be guilty or likely was? Well, I not really. Not really. Not that I can recall. I, I will say this, and, and this, this is, I think it's a factor of society, but we saw pictures of Jamie Snow as he was in 2000. Mm-hmm. A much different looking man than he was in 91. Right. It hardened. He had been in prison. He had hardened. Mm-hmm. And I think that swayed some of the jury. The, just the pictures of him. Yes. That's interesting. It's not shocking, but it's interesting. Yeah. That that just, just the photos alone. Did you follow his trial at all? I mean, as much I, I would think you'd probably be pretty interested in what happened with him after Susan's. Yeah, I did. I, I, I read the, the paper. What month was his trial in? Uh, I believe it was December. Okay. I recall reading it. I definitely recall, you know, paying attention to to the verdict 
and being curious about that because, you know, having heard a lot of the evidence already, I was surprised by the, the guilty verdict. Well, that's what I was wondering if that came as a shock that another jury found Jamie guilty after you found Susan not guilty. Yes, it did. Can you tell me a little bit about this meeting when you went in? Was it just with Reynard that you went in? It wasn't with Griffin when they called you back? I think it was with just Charlie. I don't remember Tina Griffin being in the, in the meeting. Okay. I think, if I recall, he, he they called and asked and said these were the available times and, you know, you had to pick which time you could go. But I don't recall anybody else being in there with me. I think I was in there by myself. Well, I'm wondering how many of the jurors they got to because another juror told me, and I didn't want to say anything unless you brought it up, but another juror told me that that happened too. But he said when he went in, there were six of them that all went in together. So I wonder if they were filling those. It, it just so happened you picked a time slot when when no one else was there. It could have been. Now, was it, this wasn't like a subpoena, right? They just asked you to come in? Correct. Okay. Yeah, I just asked us. What, what did you, I know you said you were you worked in substance abuse in that in that field, and that you were you obviously have a graduate degree. What field do you work in now? I still work at the same organization. I'm the quality manager for the organization, so I have a master's in counseling and a master's in business administration. Okay, so you have a good read on situations and people, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Yeah. What was your feeling during that meeting with 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 Charlie? Well. I was surprised because when we were invited to come, when I was invited to come in, I was thinking it was going to be more, I don't know, I, it was not what I was expecting. So to be asked about specific pieces of evidence or how compelling was it, um, how did it influence you to hear that information, I was kind of surprised by that. I, it changed my opinion about the legal system when I, when I saw that, when I experienced that. In what way? Well, in working with clients, you often hear clients talk about that someone's out to get them, but you think, well, that's really just a manifestation of their paranoia or the fact that they're, they know they're doing something illegal. And in this case, it was much more of, we want Jamie Snow and we want to make sure we have the evidence to convict him. And asking us those questions, especially after, because so much of the trial seemed to be faced that we had to convict Jamie first. And so it was apparent then that it was round one and they were going for round two and they were, you know, getting ready to present the same case, only stronger. The advice that they got obviously worked. I mean, of course, there's so many factors, a different jury. There's so many different circumstances, different attorneys. Do you recall any advice you gave them that as far as like how they could have made their case stronger or what didn't work for you? Well, I recall the hearsays, the dumping beer, the driving the car, those things, to me, meant nothing. You know, that, that didn't imply somebody's guilt on that. And probably the eyewitness testimonies were the ones that you know, were the more stronger pieces of evidence. There was such a distinct difference in Danny Martinez's testimony from one trial to the next. And that's what I kind of what I was wondering were if they got from you and the other jurors you know, I, I put a lot more weight into the eyewitness testimony, but even he said he wasn't sure. Obviously, something is not right. 
because you, when you're trying to look at it logically, like how does someone wait nine years to make an identification and then go to trial and say he's 85% sure, and then a couple of months later goes to another trial, nothing's happened in between, and now he's 100% sure, unless he was just told to say, say 100%. Right. When you were in that meeting, I mean, was it, I, I, I presume it was, a, it was a friendly meeting. They weren't aggressive with you or anything, right? Oh, no, no. But there, there is an implied pressure. Mm-hmm. Believe me, it wasn't just about the meals that we had. <laughs> it wasn't a, a, how was your jury experience? Did you enjoy the meals? There was definitely, it was a power pressure. You knew they had power. You knew kind of the importance that they wanted you to, to be there for a purpose. Did they apply any kind of guilt towards you? Because that's what I'm wondering. If they truly thought Susan was guilty, that would be a super awkward meeting to have to bring in the jurors that foiled their case. Did they did they give you any kind of feeling of like you should feel guilty about this or you got it wrong? Anything like that? Not that I recall. Like, isn't that strange? Oh, yeah. I walked out of that whole situation and I was a pawn. The jury was a pawn. Susan was a pawn in this situation. And they were out to get Jamie Snow. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, that doesn't mean he's guilty or not, but it's it's a scary look at the criminal justice system that's supposed to be just and fair to know that they are at all costs. I mean, that's a again, I, I keep saying it, but it's so strange to me that you the 12 of you unanimously said your case is wrong. And then they they have never heard of this happening before. And then they bring you all back in. Not to see what went wrong per se, but say, okay, it's almost like that trial didn't matter. They just, okay, well, how can we make it better for the next one? Exactly. Yeah. As I said, it changed my opinion of the legal justice process. The state failed to prove to jury number one that either Susan or Jamie were guilty. And then after the trial, Charlie Raynard used the first jury to help him develop a strategy for Jamie's trial more pawns in the state's game of chess. Then in January of 2001, Jamie Snow walked into the lion's den as Reynard and Griffin presented a new and improved case. Most notably, they were now armed with a witness who was 100% certain that he saw Jamie at the Clark station that night. And this time, they were finally able to secure their conviction the only conviction that ever really mattered to them to begin with. Checkmate. After our interview, Tori sent me a message, kind of an afterthought. And I think what she has to say is important for all of us to hear. She wrote, I've been mulling over how you asked me if I had gotten a subpoena to talk to the state's attorney after Susan's trial. I did not but it didn't occur to me that I could decide not to go, or should decide not to go talk to them. I was naively thinking that I was being a good citizen. That's another way that the trial changed my opinion about the criminal justice system. If I were in a similar situation now, I would not go speak with the state's attorney. Maybe your listeners can get that one takeaway from this. It is not their job to make the case for the state. On Sunday, September 29, 2013, Susan Claycomb passed away due to complications from a surgery. She left this world entirely too soon, and she suffered through more than most of us could ever even imagine. 
and in the face of the games that the state's attorney's office played with her life, Susan, against all odds, stood her ground. She refused to let a corrupt system take away her integrity. She stood tall. She fought. She maintained her truth and she beat the system. After giving birth to Carl Jr. in jail, Susan eventually was able to be free and raise her son for 13 years before her passing. I pray that you are resting in peace, Susan. Your fight is over now, and you will forever have the respect and admiration of thousands of people from all around the world because you were honest enough and strong enough to stand up against the bully that so many other people caved to. Susan Claycomb's life and memory should forever be honored. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 7 logo was created by me, with assistance from Zach Weaver and Shane Yoder. All of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Pam Maples, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com or you can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at TruthJusticePod, and my personal Twitter handle is at BobRuffTruth. And you can even follow Mike at MBussing89. For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at TruthJusticePod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. You are up at four, baking pastries at five, and open at six. 100th cappuccino by eight, 200th customer by nine, and there's still 12 hours to go. That's why you need a business broadband that works as hard as you do. 
Introducing Sky Business. With 4G internet backup and our Stay Connected guarantee, that's better business. To find out more, visit skybusiness.com. Sky Fiber only, 30-second 4G activation or one-off credit. New customers, Pro Plus Packs only. T's and C's apply.